Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, Worldly Sorrow. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 27, verses 30 to 40, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So at the very least, sorrow or grief can be motivated by two very different things leading to two very different results. Godly grief is most obviously a grief that comes from God. It leads to genuine repentance. It's produced when someone becomes aware of what their sin is and that their sin is an offense against God himself. Now, worldly grief, on the other hand, is remorse about something that we've lost. It's a a grief about how it affects us. It's inspired by a love for this world. It's what we've lost in this world. And here we concentrate on what was taken from us rather than an accounting of righteousness. Let me suggest an illustration. You know, I know of people who spend a lifetime grieving for something that was taken from them. It's a job, it's a reputation, it's a loved one, or it's a large amount of money. And in all of these cases, what was taken was often taken by someone who was either evil or at the very least acted in an evil fashion. But the loss we feel and the anger that ensues is about our loss. And that's fair enough. But that loss turns people into seeking revenge rather than people seeking God, his eternal treasure. Each one of us should pray, Lord, train me to have godly grief and teach me also to avoid worldly grief. And today we're going to do a study of worldly grief, how to identify it and how to know we we have it. This will be a case study in the life of Esau. It was Hebrews 12, verses 15 to 17, which said, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The incident that the writer of the Hebrews is referring to harkens back to the time when when Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew, and not the time when he was deceived out of his blessing. But the growing sense of injustice in Esau led him to be a man who would not and could not seek God, but rather sought revenge. His worldly sorrow made repentance impossible for him. His tears, his impassioned sorrow for what he had lost was not godly. It was worldly. That's why his tears didn't bring him grace. And today I want us to identify worldly sorrow. Get to know what it is, what it feels like, so that should we encounter it in our own lives, that we're able to identify it for what it is. And the reason for doing that is simple. 2 Corinthians says that it leads to death. It leads to spiritual death. Our text today begins with the aftermath of Jacob's act of deceiving his father. Remember what we've said. God had already promised that the Abrahamic blessing belonged to Jacob and not to Esau. But we've already seen that Jacob has, once in the past, tricked Esau into selling him his birthright. And and furthermore, Esau's father Isaac 
has promised his son Esau that notwithstanding the command of God, Isaac was going to give Esau the Abrahamic blessing. And Jacob, in a nasty work of deception, has deceived his old man, stolen the Abrahamic blessing, leaving Esau with neither the birthright nor the blessing. And Esau's angry, and rightly so. His brother has proven that he is cunning and self-centered and is this nasty manipulator. And with that in mind, let's go to Genesis 27, verses 30 to 36a. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. You know, it's very important not to miss the point that Moses, who gives us this account, wants us to see. You know, Moses tells us that Esau came back into town as soon as, or just at the time, when Isaac had finished blessing Jacob. And the way it's described here is that if the matter had taken even a bit longer, <laughs> the two brothers could have met one leaving the father's tent and the other coming in. As strange as that sounds, this reflects God's timing. God had already determined that the two events would happen with very little time gap. It would highlight the deception. But now when the deceit is exposed, Isaac, knowing he has inadvertently given the blessing to the wrong son, begins to tremble violently. You know, we've, we've got to assume his emotional response is due to both being shocked and humiliated and being treated like a fool. He's, he's angry. You know, modern readers don't understand this account very well. You see, we can't understand why Isaac doesn't just say, well, if you lied to me to get my blessing, that blessing doesn't count and I take it all back. You know, example might be if someone signed a contract today, it was gained under deceptive purposes, our courts would rule that contract was null and void. And this is the key. You modern listener are not the only one who has problems with this you're going to see at the very least that Esau too thinks it must be redressed. But we're going to come back to that. But for now, notice that in verse 33, Isaac agrees that he has blessed Jacob with the Abrahamic blessing, and he shall be blessed. Isaac believes that once the words of the Abrahamic blessing are spoken, those words can never be undone. In verse 35, Isaac says to Esau, Jacob has taken away your blessing. It's as if Isaac is saying, I've handed the blessing to your brother, and now I no longer control it. He has it. It's not mine to give, for now I don't own it anymore. Again, many of us in our day struggle to understand this. I mean, we might even think biblically of Proverbs 26, verse 2. It says, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Well, that's to say, if you curse someone without a cause, that curse won't work. Well, how about a blessing? What if you accidentally bless the wrong person? Why can't we respond by saying, well, that blessing won't work either? 
Well, perhaps, but we might suggest the opposite. In one example might be a vow that someone might make. In Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. That's to say, the First Testament makes it quite clear that words spoken from the mouth are not to be regarded as mere words. Did you promise something, asks Numbers. And if you did, you're obligated. Now, Jesus spoke the same way when he said that our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. Anything short of that, said Jesus, comes from the evil one. It was Anthony Thistleton in his book, The Supposed Power of Words in the Biblical Writings. He says, a convention for withdrawing a performative utterance did not exist. Hence, the original performative utterance remains effectively in force. And by the way, what Thistleton means by a performative utterance is that something is promised, that is, a statement of intent is made. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money. I'm going to give you my daughter to be your wife. All those statements are performative. They are promises about something we're going to do. And the Bible says once you promise, you have to fulfill. All right. Imagine now that Isaac seems quite aware that the Abrahamic blessing, a blessing that controls the future of the earth and God's plan for the salvation of the earth, well, that's mediated through him. And he is to pass it on to one of his sons. And once he's done that, the deed is done. Isaac, from the very moment he blesses Jacob, knows that he no longer owns the Abrahamic blessing. Jacob owns it now. It's no longer in his power to bless anyone. Words were spoken and they can't be withdrawn. And that's why he's trembling with rage. Isaac had known that God wanted him to bless Jacob, but he was opposed. He loved Esau. He was determined to give Esau the most precious thing in history. And now it must have seemed that not only had his son Jacob deceived him, but God had also deceived him. And so he's trembling and he's angry, but he's not nearly as angry as Esau. What follows next is the story of 2,000 years of deep, unrelenting resentment. This month, join us as Dr. Neufeld continues with Volume 4 of his Genesis series entitled, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. This series follows the lives of Isaac and Jacob, tracing both the promises of God and the shortcomings brought about by their disobedience. And yet God is gracious and faithful to his promises. In this series, we will discover that God's promises of grace are far greater than our frailty and sin. This is a series of hope and confidence that God's purposes never fail. So join us throughout the month of June for Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. You can also listen to the first three volumes of the series or purchase them online at backtothebible.ca. And if you'd like more information or if you'd like to contribute to our special fiscal year end campaign in support of all of the ministry programs of Back to the Bible Canada, call today at one 800 663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca I have to believe that if Isaac had told Esau that he would not give him the Abrahamic blessing because, you know, God had already revealed that it must be given to Jacob. You know, I, I've got to believe that Esau you know, might have been deeply disappointed, even resentful, but not overtly hateful. 
You know, in verse 35, Isaac tells the son he loves, your brother came deceitfully and took away your blessing. And the word deceit can also be translated as fraud. If you want to get a sense out of what Isaac tells Esau, well, you might want to look ahead to Psalm 24, verse 4, because that verse uses the same Hebrew word. Psalm 24, verse 4 is an answer to the question of who shall be counted worthy of ascending the hill of the Lord. And so it says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There's the word, deceitfully to speak what is a lie, to proclaim what is false as if it were true. And so Isaac adds to Esau's pain. The thing was done, he says, by a brother who is unworthy of God. It's a brother who's in league with a liar. It's a brother whose soul is given over to the darkness of lies. And once those words are spoken by dad, Esau erupts in anger. Isn't my brother rightfully called Jacob, the one who grabs my heel, the one who takes from me what's not his? But then Esau's not done. My brother cheated me two times. And then out of his mouth comes the memory of an old wound. My brother stole my birthright. (laughs) But here, technically, that's not true. It might have been a bad deal, but truthfully, Esau sold his birthright to his brother. It was fair and square. And when he did it, he didn't value that birthright. Remember, Esau had told Jacob, what good is a birthright? I'm starving to death right now. And so the Bible says he despised it. And now as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, he found no repentance. That is, he found no way back, even though he sought to come and get it back with tears. Well, we might ask, why couldn't that matter be redressed? But think about it. How many people today trade away the long-term for a short-term meal? Or to put the matter plainly, how many of us gladly trade in a short-term pleasure for the long-term of eternity? Let's eat and drink, we say, for tomorrow we die. Grab what we can today and let tomorrow take care of itself. You know, there's an old Chris Christopherson song about a man who, who wants to take a woman to bed with him. And he does so on the basis of this appeal. He says, I don't care what's right or wrong. I don't try to understand. Let the devil take tomorrow, sings Christofferson. Lord, tonight I need a friend. And that was Esau. But now having given up his birthright, that's the lion's share of his father's wealth, something he willingly sold, he now seeks something that's not his. He wants the Abrahamic blessing, and in his own mind, he ignores this fact. He doesn't say, Father, I've sinned. I gave away my birthright for next to nothing, and now I desire that which is not mine. No, no. Both he and his father are feeding on one thing and one thing only, deceit, not their own culpability and sin. Worldly sorrow does not allow for that kind of self-reflection. Worldly sorrow magnifies the wrongs that are done to us. Worldly sorrow imagines what might have been if someone had not treated us badly. Consider the difference between Esau and Esau's nephew, a man named Joseph. When Joseph's brother sold him into slavery in Egypt, and when the long tale of what happens next is told, eventually Joseph will tell those same brothers, and here I'm reading Genesis 50 verse 20. He says, you intended it for evil but God intended it for good. That's to say, Joseph never papered over the evil that his brothers had done to him. No doubt, he sorrowed greatly as the years went by, but he gained perspective. God was in this, thought Joseph. Even though the evil was done, God had a plan. 
You know, Esau, I think, was incapable of seeing his own crisis from that vantage point. I do know that years later, he's quite prepared to forgive Jacob for what he's done. And Jacob himself marveled over such grace. To see your face, Jacob would later say to Esau, is like seeing the face of God. And you know, in some fashion, God did give grace to Esau. That was later. But still, I have to think that the underlying bitterness remained. I mean, what else explains the open hostility between Esau's descendants towards Jacob's descendants? See, I have no doubt that in the culture of the Edomites, this story was retold. Israel took from us that which should have been ours. And they took it by deceit through lies and treachery. And that kind of retelling generation after generation breeds anger and eventually warfare and death. Worldly sorrow is like that. There's a measure of forgiveness in it, but the forgiveness is never complete. Well, we left in our passage with Esau complaining about the deceit of his brother. So let's continue to read verses 36b to 38. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. You know, years ago, researcher Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published her historic work, Five Stages of Dying. She said the emotional response we feel when we hear that we're dying leads to a five-stage process in dealing with it. First stage is denial. It's not true. It's not happening. The second stage is anger, feelings of rage, and questions of why me. The third stage is bargaining, often with God. If I do this, won't you spare me? The fourth stage is depression. And the fifth stage, if we make it to that, is acceptance. It's often been pointed out that these five stages are not just true of hearing the news that we're dying, but they're typical and common approaches to dealing with loss, loss of of any kind. But the critique of Kubler-Ross's work is that all these five stages happen often at once, and they also happen in various orders. The truth is that all human beings react to loss. We exhibit at least some of these emotional responses. And Esau reacts in what we might think of as denial. It seems impossible for him to think that his father has only one blessing. And as these words exit his mouth, they betray what he's thinking. I don't think he ever understood nor ever appreciated the real meaning of the Abrahamic blessing. It doesn't seem possible to him that that's all his father has. It's here that Isaac tells his son the dreadful truth. Everything that has attended my life for good has come from the Abrahamic blessing. Isaac didn't become rich because of his own skill, but because of something that God had promised his father. No, he says, that's all I have. Jacob has become your Lord. That is, he now, as of this moment, is supreme over you. He now is your master. I have all my life, says Isaac, this one thing. And with that, Esau starts weeping. Remember, I began this teaching by speaking about sorrow, and here it is. These are the tears of a man who has come to realize that the blessing of Abraham has passed him by. He's left with nothing. What kind of tears are these? Is this godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow might eventually lead Esau to genuine repentance. He might have said, you know, I've never valued my birthright, and I wanted the blessing that never belonged to me. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. And if that had been the case, 
Esau would have come under the blessing of Abraham. He would have learned to bless Jacob, and God would, through Jacob, have blessed him. But worldly sorrow seeks blame. Which one is Esau? Well, let's read the end of the passage, verses 39 to 40. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. (laughs) If that's a blessing, it's a paltry one indeed. I mean, the only blessing in that is that after a long period of time, you know, Esau's offspring would break the dominion of Jacob. All that's left now is for Esau to plan the murder of his brother, and the dysfunction in this family is irreversible. Is there a lesson in all of that? Yeah, there is. If you want to avoid the kind of worldly sorrow that leads to death, listen up. There is but one thing for you. You've got to submit yourself to God's sovereign designs in your life. You've got to stop fighting God. You've got to start submitting to his will. I have no further counsel. You know, if Esau had heeded to that, he would have taught his family to submit to God's design, an Abrahamic blessing. And if that had been the case, the people of Israel would have blessed the people of Edom. But it didn't happen that way. And that's our lesson. If we resist the will of God, we are kicking against a God who cannot be moved. It will lead us to worldly sorrow, and eventually it will lead us in the paths of death. Would you repent, my friend? Would you come in grace to God and say, I submit to your will? John, we both strive to do the same discipline every year, and that's reading through the Bible every year. And I tell you, every time I get to Samuel or something of that nature, I see things and I say to myself, that just doesn't seem right. What is God doing there? But sometimes we just have to be determined that that is God's purpose. Yeah, God's purpose in the life of every single believer is that we uh, submit to his designs and his long-term plans and that we find our joy in what he has designed and seek our hearts in that. I mean, that's what we find in Esau. He doesn't want what God has designed, doesn't want it, neither does Isaac. And this is what leads to this whole dysfunction that tears this family apart and brings, you know, generational pain and nations fighting nations. I mean, this this takes upon itself a life of its own. I mean, we have to come back to what I said, submitting to God's design leads to life. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology, all while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. You know, messages like this help us feel like we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment means so much. You can join us in this effort with your financial support 
by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.